Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hey, oh, thank you. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Yeah, that was overwhelming. So thanks. Um, I'm delighted to see you, even if that's not mutual, that's totally fine. My name is Mike. If you're new to our community, welcome. As Stephanie was explaining, typically what we do is we do some music, and then we um, do a bit of a teaching, and then we have a kind of a response time at the end. We're changing that because um, we're in a conversation about what the Bible is and how it works and how best to understand it and loads of questions, and so we literally end the service with Q&A. So um, a couple of things, a couple of ground rules for the Q&A. First, there is an introvert line or an online line. If uh, you want to text your questions, Kevin will get those. Um, And uh, also, if you would hold the questions in the room until I get through the block, I've got about a 25-minute block of stuff, and then we'll open it up for questions. If you do... Raise your hand in the room. Someone will come to you with a microphone, and uh, we ask that you not take the microphone, all right? We don't trust you with the microphone, and so we we are going to hold the microphone for you, and uh, if you would be brief, that would be awesome. We want our online folks to be able to listen, and then um, lastly, I want to let you know, Kevin, this is Kevin. You guys know Kevin. Kevin is hosting a discussion group immediately after this service at 11. Um, in the overflow room, if you go down the hall and to the left, and so literally, if there's stuff we'll be, you know, continue to be chewing on, you're welcome there. And then Kevin's also going to be doing a class, not this week, but next Wednesday, so a week from this Wednesday, on, for those of us who are relatively new to the Bible, like, okay, you open it up to page one, and then what? Um, if part of the goal of our conversation is to make the Bible weird again, then um, what do you do when you just open it up and go, okay, uh, how do I start? And so Kevin's going to offer this class twice um, as we go through and kind of go uh, talk about the resources that are available to us and so on. And speaking of resources, there is a book table out there, brothers and sisters, because uh, we know Jesus, Jesus turns over tables, but never book tables, right? Jesus... It's a fan of book tables, so I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that was sketchy. All right, so, so last week, <laughs> I know, I know, we're stretching. Um, so last week, we talked about the idea um, that the Bible is inspired by God, uh, but we, we wanted to talk specifically about how it's inspired, because there was a view, at least that I inherited, that inspiration meant it just sort of fell perfectly from heaven, and we call that the golden tablet view. And, um, and that's not at all how the scripture talks about itself. And so we went through, if you remember, ad nauseum, verse after verse, talking about how the Bible talks about how it came together. And there are verses that talk about the fact that God, this was not of human origin, but of God's work in the world. And other verses that were like, hey, my mom said something really cool, and so it's in the book of Proverbs, you know, if you remember that. Um, literally. And, uh, and so the, the, the scripture comes to us as the product of human and divine partnership. And because it's 
got a divine aspect to it. We talk about words like inspiration and authority. But because it has a human part to it, we talk about things like context and genre. Uh, And we're going to introduce a word today called accommodation. We're going to talk about how, because God is partnering with humans in this, uh, God works to accommodate the humanity that we bring to the table. And to accommodate, the word accommodation can mean either um, a house or a dwelling, I uh, provide you with accommodations, or it can mean to adapt or to adjust. The word accommodate comes from a Latin word that means to fit, so that I fit around your wishes and desires. And it's that second uh, way of understanding accommodation we want to talk about. Because God is committed to human um, and divine partnership, God adjusts and adapts to the humans, right? Which kind of makes sense. Now, we're, gonna, we're going to, if you'd save your questions, we're, except if you're texting, text them as we go. But I want to I present, I don't know, 25 minutes of stuff on what this is. Because not understanding this causes a great deal of harm, uh, particularly in how we use the Bible and how we understand it ourselves. All right? So, giddy up. Are you ready? Great. Fantastic. Well, yep. Awesome. All right. So, when we talk about God accommodating humans, there are at least two examples of this I want to explore today. The first example of God accommodating humans is that God allows humans at a particular time, culture, symbolic universe, and language to tell his story. So, it is, the scholarship calls it the scandal of particularity. That God, the God chose a people in real history at a certain time with a certain language, with certain neighbors, and a certain understanding of the world to reveal God's self to the world. And so I want to give you an example of how God accommodates the ancient worldview. Go ahead if you, uh, if you would. This is Jacob. Jacob was nervous about being called out. We're not going to call him out at all today. Um, we just did. That's the joke. That was the joke, and um, it didn't work. In Genesis chapter 1, it says in verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Now, the Old Testament picture uh, is that God creates the heavens and the earth. Heaven, when you hear the word heaven, don't think like atmosphere. Think just the stuff up there. And earth doesn't mean globe. Remember, we didn't even know. We didn't have pictures of the globe of the earth until the 60s. right? We knew it was round, but we didn't have pictures of it. So in the ancient mind, it was literally the land. God created the land I'm standing on and the stuff up there. And the scriptures say that there was water covering the surface of the land. And so God introduces something called a rakia. That's what the word vault means. And if you're a King James fan, it's the word firmament, which is a great word. And the firmament was, the rakia was a dome that separated the waters above from the waters below and allowed land to come forward. And it was thought that the reason, so there's water above us, and that's the reason the sky is blue because that's the color of water. Uh, and uh, it was thought that, that God had uh, floodgates, windows, that he would open to allow some of that water to come down. So like in Genesis, next slide if you would, Jacob. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were open. Floodgates were just windows 
that allowed the water that was being held at bay by the dome to come down. Or Genesis 8 repeats the same sort of idea. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed. And so it stopped. When the floodgates are closed, it stopped, right? They weren't aware, obviously, of evaporation and clouds and all those sorts of things. Or in Job, we read about God having storehouses of snow or hail, just rooms full of the stuff that he sends down to the earth. Now, the, the, if you want a graphic representation of how the ancients saw the earth, here it is. And I know it's super small, but there is, uh, there is water surrounding the whole land, and there is a dome that is called the firmament and the vault that has the sun, moon, and stars. And then there, are land, there is land, and under the land is a place called Sheol, which was the place of the dead. And under that were pillars of the earth, where earth literally rested on pillars that came out of water, and we were surrounded entirely by water. Makes sense so far. Now, we've since learned that although I can totally see why an ancient person without any sort of science or telescopes or astronauts or whatever would look at this and go, man, that seems like a dome. And why is it blue? Because there's water up there, because water comes down, right? Where we realize that, that that's not actually the picture of the earth that we have, correct? And yet, we find God choosing a people who saw the world this way to reveal God's self through. So one very basic example of how God accommodates himself to humans is that he accommodated to how they saw the world. Now there are people out there that will say, no, 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 no. There is a real firmament, and the earth is flat, and it does rest on pillars. And, and that's a great conversation for another day. Um, that is making Genesis do something Genesis was never intended to do. And, and I think, we're still talking about it as a teaching team, we'll probably do some Genesis stuff next year. Uh, Genesis, yes, okay. All right, we got, we got Stephanie's vote. Okay, we got two votes, yes. Um, so that's one example, all right? And we can talk more about that if you'd like. The second example is a bit more nuanced. God accommodates himself to the ancient worldview, but God also accommodates himself to human sinfulness over and over and over. So Genesis 3, right? The first two chapters are awesome. God made them. Uh, he made them um, man and, uh, and woman. He made them husband and wife. They were naked and felt no shame. And then, of course, they sin, and immediately their nakedness is a cause for shame. And so God does something God never intended to do, which was he made garments of skin for them, um, and his wife, and he clothed them. So he sacrificed animals for their skins to cover the first humans, is the idea. Is that, is that, was that God's will from the start? Was it his will from the start? Absolutely not. But what does he do? He shows them mercy even in their sinfulness. So that's literally God adjusting to the sinfulness of the humans. The flood is also, unfortunately, an example of this. Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart uh, were only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And God then brings judgment. And, and if you study the Genesis 1 picture of the waters, and God like commanding the waters 
to be separated. The unseparating of the waters is literally an uncreation. So that the flood is actually the reversing of Genesis 1. And the judgment that God executes on the humans except for one family. Now, in Genesis 9, after the flood, notice the conversation God has with Noah and the family. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Have we heard that before in the story anywhere? Yeah. Man, you guys are either dying of boredom or you're so deeply enthralled. I need more feedback, men and women. Go, Jacob, let's go back and make him say it, all right? Where did we hear be fruitful and multiply before? In Genesis 1. Literally the first command given to the human. So instantly you're seeing God re-engage the original human vocation post-flood. Next. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth you will, and all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Was this true before? Nope. Only the vegetation was given for food prior to the flood. Just as I gave you the green plants, which was, which was pre-flood, now I give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. Now, because meat's an option, there's this rule, and, and, and we get to why. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. So now we're talking about murder. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall the blood be shed. For, the image, for in the image of God has God made humanity. So, and as for you, just, just to be clear, kids, be fruitful and multiply. All right? Just again. Next. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature... Uh, all the birds, livestock, wild animals, everything that came out of the ark, every living creature on the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Right? So this is a, a Sunday school story that usually has cute pictures of animals and never shows all the dead bodies floating underneath. Um, and, um, but this, this part, I'm just saying, this part, in Genesis 9, becomes super important for how you understand the rest of the story. The reason the flood happens, and we'll talk about this if we do Genesis skippers, um, the, the flood was a local solution to a very local problem, all right, as it's recorded in Genesis, and we'll talk about that later. But now God has both exercised ultimate judgment that God has, he's demonstrated that he has the prerogative to wipe out life on earth, but he commits himself to never do it again, which means even though the humans are still sinful, God has now committed himself to living with them in suboptimal conditions. Do you understand that and see that? Because now we have murder on the planet and that was never him, so here's a law about murder, right? There was, there was a, 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 and this becomes so important, that what we're reading in the scriptures is God triaging a fallen human race. It's not God's ideal will. So all of the mayhem, the violence, the sexual abuse, the sin, all of that isn't God going, yep, just the way I drew it up. 
but rather God work, committing himself to working with a fallen people and triaging them as they go through human history. So a great example of this is polygamy. All right, um, In Genesis 2, there's this great picture of oneness of flesh. Go ahead and throw that up there if you would, my man. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and it's not rib, the Hebrew word means side, which has all sorts of equality meanings. Um, the Lord God made a woman from the side he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man, stoked, said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then um, there is this great verse. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his singular wife, and they will become one flesh. That's the ideal in creation, correct? Look at me. Yes. But then on page four, right? Page four, Lamech married two women, and there are their names. And you'd, be, you'd, totally be, you'd totally be excused for thinking the Bible promotes polygamy because from this point forward, every major hero of the faith has multiple wives. Right? And you're like, huh, I thought we just read about the one flesh thing. But we have all of these multiple wives going on. What's happening to this? Right? Next slide, if you would. And... Um, and then, oh, and this is so good. And then you get God giving a law that says, well, if you're going to practice polygamy, here's how you do it. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. All right, do you see what's happened? The ideal was given in Genesis 2. One flesh. The real we discover in Genesis 4. The humans were marrying multiple partners. And so the accommodation comes in Exodus 21. Well, if you're going to do that, don't deprive the first one of what you owe her. Now, do you see that train of thought? Do you see it? You have the ideal, what God intends. You have the real, what fallen humanity does, and then you have God triaging the real. So when you read that command, and you think, oh, oh, okay, great. So God's will is for polygamy. No, 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 that's triage. The ideal was in Genesis 2. Makes sense so far. All right, so there are loads of examples of this. Kingship is a great example. Did Yahweh want Israel to have an earthly king, a human king? No, not even remotely. Yahweh was Israel's king. But then the people demand, we want a king to be like all the other nations. So what does Yahweh do? He gives them a king. He warns them that this kingship thing's going to go sideways, and it does. And then he gives laws about how the king should be relating to everybody else. Was, God's, was that God's ideal will? No, that was triaging the desires of sinful humans, Correct? Divorce, another great example. We talked about this when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount series. There was a command in Deuteronomy that said this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends it 
from, uh, sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, and that's all I had evidently on the slides, but the, the idea, the, the end of that sentence is, she must not go marry the original husband. That's the, that's the thing. But they, uh, the, the command in Deuteronomy introduces something called a certificate of divorce. That if a man finds something displeasing about his wife because of something indecent. Now, we looked at this months ago. There was a huge debate around what indecent meant. There were two rabbinical schools of thought. One said, that's purely sexual infidelity. Another said, no, no, it's anything. You burn the toast. Literally, there was a rabbinical teaching if she burns the toast. And, um, and so there was a very permissive culture because guess, guess which one ordinary Jewish men would choose if those are the two options about divorce? They choose the easiest one. Yeah, exactly, of course. For any and every reason, we will divorce. Because the Bible said, as long as we give a certificate of divorce, we're good, correct? So, Jesus gets asked about this verse in Matthew 19. Go ahead. Yep, and text that if you would. Absolutely. Matthew 19. There we go. Some Pharisees came to test him, and this was the theological question. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and for any and every reason? This was a certain interpretation of Deuteronomy. Jesus replies, haven't you read that at the what? Right. So that's the ideal. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's he quoting? He's quoting Genesis 2, right? But their counter to this, well, he keeps going, so there are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. But their counter to this is, but, 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 Deuteronomy, we're told, we're commanded that we might, uh, a man might give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. So they quote the Bible at Jesus, which you never do, all right? Never. <laughs> never do this. And then notice what Jesus says. Moses permitted you. He didn't command it. Would you, I need you to focus, not on the cuteness right there, on the cuteness right here, okay? <laughs> Moses permitted you. Notice, Mo, did Moses command it? Nope. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? But it was not that way at the beginning. So notice, what's Jesus doing here? The real is that you become one flesh. No, let no one, or that's the ideal, excuse me. You become one flesh, let no one separate what God's brought together. The real was, well, they're divorcing all the time. So the accommodation was, oh, if you're going to divorce, give her a certificate of divorce so she has legal standing in the community. But because of the permissiveness of divorce culture back then, when Jesus is asked about this, where does he take them? He takes them all the way back to Genesis. That's the ideal. They quote the accommodation back to him. And he says, no, no, that was an accommodation because your hearts are hard. It was not that way at the beginning. I mean, 
This is happening all the time in the Bible. So very often we're taught to read the Bible as if all of this is God's will. And the Bible itself says it is not. It's not. It's triage. As God adjusts and adapts. It's like when Paul, uh, in, in the book of Philemon is incredibly subversive. A lot of people ask, why didn't Paul fight against slavery? Oh, he did. But he wasn't going to, that'd be like our little church saying, hey guys, we're going to take down American capitalism. Right? That's a waste of effort. What Paul does instead is he doesn't redefine slavery, but in the book of Philemon, he redefines what it is to be a master to a slave and says, this runaway slave that I have that I'm sending back to you, treat him as a brother. So in the midst of the real, you get glimpses of the ideal all over the place. Jesus, if you want to know what the ideal is, Jesus of Nazareth is the ideal. And that's why Jesus will come along and say, hey, remember that command about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? That's an accommodation. I want you to love and bless your enemies, not seek revenge on them. Is this making sense so far? Okay, all right. Randy, I want to step off. I'm not going to. It's right there. Floor is lava. You got to be careful. Um, so this has, this has a couple huge points. And then, and then let's open the floodgates of your questions. Yes. Um, this has one huge point, and I really need you to look at me for a second. Okay? The Bible does not endorse everything it describes. So many people look at the awfulness in the Bible and say, well, yeah, God stands behind that. And you're like, actually, no. When the psalmist says, God, would you take the infants and dash them against the rocks? That's the psalmist talking. That's not God talking. God allows that emotion in to the sacred text to open us up to the fact that any emotion we bring is welcome, but that's not a God-endorsed emotion, right? So very often, because we read the Bible like it's just one book and flat, we're not realizing that the verses that we're weaponizing against each other aren't very often God's ideal at all, but rather accommodation to human sinfulness. So like so many people will talk about the Old Testament. I mean, isn't it ugly? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it is. Why is that? Because God is triaging human people. When God gives the law, he doesn't give all the laws at once. If you read the text really carefully, God wanted all of Israel to join him on the mountain. They don't. God gives laws and only Moses comes. God wanted the people to be a whole kingdom of priests. Everybody a priest. But after the golden calf incident, he now separates the Levites from the rest and gives laws about the priesthood. He's continually, and, and parents, parents, don't we do this with our kids? They get caught doing something, and it's like, well, okay. Our, the reality on the ground has changed a little bit, so we're going to change our approach. So what you're reading in the Bible, there are glimpses of the ideal all over the place, right? It was very common in the ancient Near East for people who were fighting wars against each other to claim their God commanded them to wipe each other out. 
But what was not common is a year of jubilee where all debts are canceled. You get glimpses of the ideal, but so often the ugliness that offends us was God simply accommodating the sinfulness of human persons and triaging them towards the ideal. Questions? And if not, great. I am, I am good. I'm good, man. All right, I'll is, throw one at you to start. Oh, you got one? Yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. Is I was like, I looked at you, and I, but it was Kevin's voice, and I was like, that's interesting. So I'll talk, you move your mouth. Yes, 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 yes. Hi there. Hi. Is animal sacrifice an accommodation? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Is also the priesthood and the tabernacle? Absolutely. Now, 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 now listen. Here's why. All right? What was God's intent in Genesis 1 and 2? To dwell with his people, correct? Look at me. Always his intent. But now they're sinful. Now they're not holy and they're impure. And so God introduces the tabernacle system Right to allow for what he intended in the garden to still be true. But now there are all of these designations about pure and impure and holy and common that are now designed to teach us about what the worship of Yahweh is like, but it's done in the midst of the sinfulness of the Israelite camp. So God's will was Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And that's where you see when people accuse God of not being merciful. The whole story is the story of God's mercy. It is him constantly adjusting to the sinfulness of human beings. Now, can we learn a, a ton about God through the sacrificial system? Absolutely. But God's original intention was the human being sat there in a sinless state and walked with him in the cool of the garden without sacrifices, priests, or animal sacrifice, which I already said. You know what I mean? So the, and, and then you have not only the tabernacle, but then the temple, and then Jesus comes as the ideal. And Jesus is the presence of God on earth without any mediation. And then Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit into you. So there is this progressive picture of what God intended the whole time, and then the story ends with God walking with human beings on a renewed earth. And so, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. That question was it for you? You have a friend? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, um, how would that affect our understanding of Jesus' sacrifice? So, oh, beautiful. Was Jesus' sacrifice God's ideal will? Was his, was his death on a cross also an accommodation? Oh, yes. The, the greatest accommodation of all. Absolutely. His incarnation was an accommodation. Absolutely. His life, his death, his becoming subject to a cross. Absolutely. Now, God knew humanity was going to go off the rails, and so the scriptures can just simply say, from the beginning, God had set Jesus apart as a sacrifice. Absolutely. And all of the sacrificial stuff prefigures what Jesus is going to do and gives meaning to it. But the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives, that was the goal. People being fully human without any mediation whatsoever with the Trinitarian God.
I've got one, Sam. Great question. Great questions. So it's not like fully formed in my, in my how to ask it. So don't may, worry. Okay. So, I don't, I'm not fully formed in any of my answers <laughs> either. So we're all good. So we're not adding to the text anymore, right? So Correct. now what does triage look like outside of like, cause the Bible is so weaponized. Yes. Against so many. Yep. So how does triage work? Is that through the church? Is that through, and then how do you, the church is that weaponized? Like it just feels like a cyclical thing that how do we triage now? Yes, 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 yes. Fantastic. So the big shift from old covenant to new covenant is the shift away from um, triaging through Torah to triaging through spirit. And so the, the, the scriptures invite us into a posture of wisdom and discernment, right? The, the Bible doesn't have rules about every single thing that we encounter. And so between the text, the spirit, and the community, we are constantly triangulating about how it is to best live faithfully. And there are ways in which we can discern unfaithful ways of living from faithful ways of living, but all of those have to do with the ideal that, of humanity that we see in Jesus. And so, um, for, am I answering your question, first of all? Because it's a genius question. Yeah. Okay, do I need to say any more? You're good. I got one off the text line. Yeah. We can talk about it more. That's a good question. That's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, There's a couple that revolve around this idea that if God is all-knowing and authoritative and his will is his will. Yes. um, And he knew this wouldn't be the ideal. Yeah. Okay. And if God is good, why did he allow all this? Right. (laughs) All right, let me ask you a question. Parents. Parents, is, do you know childbirth's painful? Going in? I mean, men particularly? Are your children? It's tough. I had to sit next to her for 19 hours on a cot, okay? And I didn't sacrifice? Come on. I'm teasing entirely. Although, you, although I learned... You just made half the room really mad. I know, but I... Well, let me make it worse, because at one point, I, I, I looked at my wife. She was like 20-something hours of labor in an emergency C-section, and I'm just an idiot. I'm just an idiot. And I, and I looked at her at one point, point. I'm like, man, I'm really tired. And she... <laughs> so I'm speaking from hard-won experience. All right, what was the question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Parents, do you know your... your are, do you know ahead of time your kids are going to break your heart? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's gather around some parents around you, and we'll just sort of share that. Do you know your kids are going to make mistakes? They're going to be hurt, and they're going to be violated in the world. And why do you have them anyway? Because the joy of them being there is better than the joy of them not being there, Correct. Most of the time, says Kevin. (laughs) So why would God create a world when he desires partnerships, knowing that the partnership would go sideways? I I think it's the same exact reason. And God is so good at redeeming 
the end of the story will so surprise us that that won't be a question that will occur to us, I think, in new creation. But it certainly does now, and it's a worthy question. And, and part of that struggle is he created us with agency and will. Dude, totally. And, and that's part of it. He didn't want us just to love him because we had to. Yeah. He wanted us to love him because we just Yeah, he could have made puppets. Yeah. He could have made robots. And with that came the risk yes. of sin. That is why Genesis 1 is so important. When he says we are in his likeness and his image, what God is looking for there are cooperative participants. And that's why when God creates for six days and rests for seven, on the seventh, that's why he invites the humans. The humans are little bitty creators and resters just like God was. So yes, it goes sideways very, very quickly. And yes, I think he knew it was going to go sideways. And yes, he still chose to actualize the whole human experience. Because out of that mess, he's going to call forth a people who will be purified and live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. And so anyway, great question. Man, that's so good. We, we've got some more back here, Mike. Yes, Samuel. All right, this may be a little bit of a tangent off of the animal sacrifice thing. Yes, sir. But like, as an accommodation, when God introduced the tabernacle, was that to satisfy God or satisfy humans' understanding of what God wanted from them? Oh, first of all, the intelligence of the community here is just staggering. Um. God is quite clear the sacrifices are not for him. I own a cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your sacrifices. And even, we even get a glimpse that the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats don't remove the stain of sin. So I don't think something was satisfied there. I think God has always been a God of symbols and props because human beings are embodied. And so spiritual truth is fine, but it's the same reason we have a, a, a meal right, that we celebrate every week. It's because there's something about the touching and the tasting and the eating that does something to us. And I think the same thing is true with the sacrificial system. That, that wasn't something to satisfy God. That was something that helped human beings reorient themselves around the fact that they were A, sinful, and B, that God was holy, and that there was a way to deal with that gap. So great question. Yes. You want some more? I'm going to test that intelligence here. This might be a tangent. Um, real quick about back to the flood. Yeah. Um, when it comes to things that, we, that, are not, that were not allowed in the Bible, say the book of Enoch. Yes. So um, pertaining to the great film by Russell Crowe, uh, Noah. Um, <laughs> yeah, how, the watcher how, tradition. How do you, how it, basically how do we as Christians when we see something like that and don't understand like, how do we search and find things like Enoch that weren't allowed in the Bible? How right. do we wrestle with that? Okay. So I said, I'm sensing two questions, my sweet, intelligent friend. First question is, why were some books let in and some weren't? And we talked a bit about that last week. I'm going to try to answer the second one first. So the flood story comes after we meet the sons of God and the daughters of men. And we read about a, a tribe that was created called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim lived in the promised land. So I'm going to argue when we get to Genesis, the purpose of the flood was to wipe out the Nephilim, which were uh, the products of angels that were violating the boundaries between angels and humans. 
So my take on that is that that is all one story, and Enoch refers to it, right? There's this, this tradition called the Watchers in Jewish apocalyptic literature. That's super interesting, but man, that will take us very, very far afield. Um, but I don't think the flood is as cut and dry as, you know, we often make it in our flannel graphs. The second thing, cut and dry, that's funny. Um, <laughs> The second thing I would say is this. Now look at me, look at me. The Bible is always in dialogue with its neighbors. Always. It's part of an ancient Twitter stream, to use a Tim Mackey phrase. So there, are, there were flood stories all over ancient Mesopotamia, which gives credence to the fact that it actually happened, but there was a much different emphasis in those flood stories versus the flood story in Genesis. And so whenever I come to an Old Testament thing that I don't understand, I always assume there's a piece of that Twitter conversation that I'm missing. There's something going on. And so I don't judge it. Oh, my whole faith has fallen apart because I don't understand this little bit. But instead, I just suspend judgment and think, well, when I learn more, there's probably something here I'm missing. And I've had that happen enough with other texts where I actually believe that's true. Does that help? Great. All uh, right, a couple I, more and then one, we're out. I got one over here. Yeah. So there's a couple tribes emerging in modern Christianity where one is saying to love your neighbor as, as yourself, which you could interpret as the instruction to meet God in accommodation wherever you find him and to love everybody regardless. Yeah. And then the other side says, well, then you stand for nothing. And, and so how do you... Um, view accommodation in this dichotomy? Oh, so good. Man, that's a that's doozy. That's a good question. Yeah. Good luck, Mike. So people, <laughs> I know, right? Now, here's why we do questions. Am I an expert? Are any of us up here experts? Not really. I mean, we've had some training, but we're not experts on like all of the things that we're wrestling with. But I've been set apart as a teaching pastor to put a lot of time in to do research to provoke conversations that we get to have together, all right? And so the answers aren't always great, and I don't try to make them great. The, the important part for us is that we're a community that can ask and wrestle um, and seek, you know, uh, for whatever it is that the Spirit's doing in us. So I absolutely love this. So th there are a couple of... Um, tribes that are coming out, and often they label themselves the grace tribe and the truth tribe, right? The truth tribe, man, we gotta, we, even if it hurts and breaks relationship, we gotta, we gotta deliver the truth of the gospel, and, and very often the love tribe is characterized as, no, 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 we just love and accept people wherever they are. Is that, am I restating you correctly in terms of what you mean? Uh, we looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount series, the fact that there is no command to speak the truth in love. What the command is in Ephesians is actually truthing in love. And truthing in love, in the context of Ephesians 4, is actually embodying the, the Jesus in the community and that that is truthing in love. And very often we're presented with truth as means you're mean and love means you're weak and passive. And the Bible doesn't operate with those binaries, right? We're called to love everybody all the time, always. Neighbor uh, and enemy, that exhausts all possibilities about people we're to love. The community of faith, however, receives the Bible 
as a document that not only accommodates us to where we're at, but calls us forward into new humanity and into new creation. And so we sit in this beautiful intersection of God truthing us in love, right? God invites me into the the kingdom and invites me to the table without any precondition. And then when I'm in that community, there is the constant torting towards new creation where God is continually through other people, sometimes just his spirit, through the scriptures, constantly exposing areas of my life that represent old creation and invites me to put those off and take on new creation. So I, don't, I would say we're neither one of those tribes because I don't think either of those tribes exhausts what the command to love means. But I would rather say we're, we're a tribe that is defined by the hospitality of Jesus, which both invites everybody to the table, prostitute, tax collector, whatever, and calls everybody to repentance. And that both are true. Now, is there anything you want to say in response? Because I'm oversimplifying a great deal. We're good. All right, we can talk more. That's a phenomenal question. Last one, young lady. I got it. Come on, Sam. Come on, Sam. Sorry, Kev. Okay, so how does sin fit into all of this when in the difference of like the ideal versus the real? Is the real or the, uh, the ideal, sorry, the real yep. when he's giving like, okay, I'm meeting you where you are. If you're li- so you're a polygamist, but he, you're following what he's given you. Are you in sin? Oh, ha, 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 ha. we should have cut it off after that guy. <laughs> Genius, young lady. Man, all of you guys, you're seeing exactly how this applies. Because there are groups today that simply say, why wouldn't you allow X to be an accommodation? Because God accommodated the sin of other people, so why not this sin? Right. So, man, a couple of thoughts. First of all, in the Bible, sin is not the arbitrary violation of one of God's arbitrary rules. Sin is pollution. Sin is the failure to uh, walk in the fullness of the human vocation. All right? So sin is much bigger than just morally doing something bad. Sin is missing the mark in full humanity, and that can happen a thousand different ways from moment to moment. Secondly, when the Bible talks about dealing with sin, that the category here isn't, hey, you're forgiven, so you have nothing to worry about it. Instead, the idea is what grace does is it, it fills you with a new identity and then you're invited to live out that identity in newness the rest of your life, right? And we've talked about this before. It's similar to be, being declared, uh, if you're married, being declared a husband or wife. I got married at 29 and I had no idea what it meant to be a husband and yet I was one and so the rest of my married life is living out what's already true, correct? Thirdly, the role of the church isn't to nitpick each other's sin. The role of the church is to embody the community of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit, which is a communal thing, to the place where people are invited into new creation postures and habits. Now, one of the new creation postures and habits central to the Christian life is that of repentance. And it's God's kindness that leads us there, but there are those always among us, and I have been, and probably still am, 
somebody who decides, I'm not ready to repent about that. Would we as a community say that that is a new creation posture? No, we'd say that falls short. Absolutely. Absolutely. But so often when people talk about sin in America these days, they only have sexual sin in mind. And we want to say, no, 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 it's so much bigger than that. Right? The goal, the goal of God isn't just to get your sexuality straightened out, whatever that would look like. It's to actually realign you into the original Genesis 1 and 2 human vocation. So does the community of faith, does the community of faith get to use accommodation as an excuse? It does not. The community of faith gets to use accommodation as an invitation. That no matter where you are, you are welcome at the table. And we don't always get to order each other's discipleship, right? Ultimately, the Spirit of God and the smaller community around you does that. So we walk this line very carefully between what the communion meal represents. The communion meal represents the fact that as you are, whatever you've done, you are welcome, you are forgiven, you are part of new creation and invited now to live that new identity. But, and Paul's so clear about this, particularly in Romans, that new identity and grace is not an excuse then to simply say, well, God loved me when I was that, and so I'll just stay that for a while. That's not new creation posture. And so we're constantly inviting people into the posture of repentance. The really difficult thing in the American church is that most of what we talk about and label as sin are just external behaviors. And Jesus shows a great reluctance in the Sermon on the Mount to address external behaviors alone. Right? He's always constantly, well, you can talk about murder, great, but I want to talk about anger and contempt. You can talk about adultery, okay, but I want to talk about lust. You want to talk about making vows and promises, I want to talk about just the integrity of your speech. So one of the reasons why people in the church resist calling each other into new creation dynamics is because we've done such an awful job of excluding people who don't want to play or pushing new creation dynamics on people who haven't signed up for the kingdom of God, right? And so now there's a, a suspicion even in the church, among the church, towards religious leadership about any like straightforward torting towards new creation. So it becomes more of an invitational dynamic, I think, than something that we're like holding over each other. You're great. All right, now gang, when you pick up your Bibles, whenever that happens, I just want you to understand what you're reading is beautiful and glorious and you learn all about Yahweh, absolutely. But if you wanna know what God's will is, you're looking for the drips of ideal along the way. You're not camping in the real, right? And so we approach our Bibles, and, and very often what we do is we slam each other with accommodations instead of reminding ourselves of what the ideal turns out to be. So the invitation for us is to realize that not everything in the Bible is God-endorsed in the sense of, hey, I want you to do this. It's God endorsed in the sense that it was inspired to put down, and Paul says so many, much of this is for our benefit to learn about what the life of faith actually looks like. Make sense? Whew. All right, let's stand up. You did it. Now, so questions we don't always get to sometimes will appear on the podcast. We had a doozy last week about what do you do when people weaponize the Bible? 
Sam was on that one, and let me tell you, that boy weaponizes the Bible like you've never seen. And um, in any way, check out Journey Now podcast because that's another place we're doing questions. Kevin, you want to say something? You sure? Blow it. All right, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Brothers and sisters, amen and amen. Bingo night Friday, guys. If you want to know what it looks like in new creation, it's bingo night Friday. That's right. Okay. Yeah, are you coming?